Hello, welcome back. This time I have a story for you about a king. But he's not like some of the kings we've seen before. He's kind and joyful and brilliant. This is a story about him and, and about all the different ways there are to approach a problem. As you're listening, maybe you'll be thinking about how you might face the problems that this king has to deal with. Because no matter how brilliant this king is, there are a million, million different ways to tackle a single problem, and no one person can know all of them. And sometimes help can come from very unexpected places. Maybe your friends or family, or a shape you see in the clouds one day, or even a story you've heard. We are around the campfire, and this is where our story begins. There once lived a wise and powerful king named Gala of the kingdom of Smi. He was well known throughout the lands for his brilliant but eccentric solutions to many challenges that the great nations at his borders had been struggling with for generations. When he first came to the throne as a young man, the kingdom was rife with religious violence, for these were the early years of the great schism between the church of Tomnu and the Rakaland temple. On the first day of his rule, King Gala called together the greatest leaders of the church and of the temple in secret for neither would have come had he known the other was invited. The king decreed that they each take part in a series of games devised by the royal jester. The holy men were masked and made to play against one another and then together. What began as simple ball and peace games became grander, woven together with great tales of triumph and sorrow. Villains and heroes and adventure, with beautiful pieces carved and forged by the greatest artisans on the continent, and stories woven by the royal jester himself. The king decreed that they must play together for a day and a night, and yet one full week had passed when the holy men finally chose to cease the games and return to their duties. They embraced in farewell, and only then, after many adventures together, did they remove their masks and see the face of their sworn enemy. It is said that in that moment, they wept. And every year from that day, the royal jester hosts the great festival of holy games in the third month of Taro. All are welcome, and from Tomnu and Rakilan, initiates and leaders alike come from far and wide to take part. And no more do the great faiths clash in the cities and towns of Gala's kingdom. A new age of religious tolerance dawned. Later, during the great locust famine, while neighboring kingdoms fell into savagery and ruin, Gala's royal physician summoned the greatest chefs and scholars and farmers from across the kingdom of Smee. Overnight, they reinvented the entirety of Smee cuisine to incorporate the very locusts that decimated their fields. In that legendary kitchen, the boldest and most brilliant culinary pioneers labored without rest, the sweat from their brows salting the locust grilling on applewood skewers, or being pounded, dried, spiced, and salted into tough, wholesome jerky. 
The locust shells were ground down into flour and soup stock, and when the sun rose on the royal kitchens, the great chefs and gourmets of the world lay exhausted, triumphant, and full. That very morning, the royal physician sent out the heralds far and wide across the kingdom, bearing illustrated cookbooks with the mark of King Gala. And though at first their stomachs squirmed at the mounds of locusts scuttling across their barren fields, they had a great trust in the king's mark, and the new harvests began. Within a month, the cook fires across the kingdom of Smee smoked with the rich scent of locust protein. That dark age for the continent shall always be remembered as a festive time of much feasting. To this day, the locust remains a delicacy across Gala's lands, and each province and town has their own variations of locust jerky, each claiming theirs to be the best. Years later still, when the warmongering Otissa the Iron marched her soldiers to the borders of Smee and demanded submission, King Gala himself rode out to meet her, with the royal cartographers, scholars, and game rights in tow. They met in Parley on a thin strip of turf between the full hosts of Otissa and the regiments of Gala's loyal warriors, all willing to die for their monarchs. It is said that Gala greeted Otissa with wine and gifts, and as she drank, he did not challenge a single word she said. I have no doubt, he is said to have said, that you may have the forces to take my land, and perhaps you do. Why don't we set a wager on this? And perhaps none of your warriors need die for you to demonstrate your prowess and claim my lands as yours. Gala wagered that if she could defeat him in a war game calculated by both his and her wisest scientists to be an exact simulation of what their actual clash would be, then he would withdraw without resistance from the region and allow Otissa to solidify a foothold in his lands. And if I lose, she replied, then you may do as you wish, replied King Gala. Well, knowing that the greatest victory is to force submission without battle, and planning to turn on Gala anyway in the event of a defeat, Otissa agreed. She summoned her wisest cartographers and the game rights of her own queendom. For many hours they prepared the board and pieces corresponding to their forces with allowances for hidden information, espionage, and misdirection. Mutual referees were summoned from the free cities of Kempf, and the game began. They played for weeks, for indeed the time of each move had to be equal to the real-world time taken for a troop to move that distance. For the first week of their game, those that watched thought them evenly matched, and yet, Otissa grew more and more angry as they played. By the second week, she was snapping at her generals, and sweat beaded down her temples while she played. And then she began to falter. After two weeks, it became clear that she could not claim this region at his borders, let alone lead an invasion against King Gala. And after a few days, she rose in a fury, flipping the game table and sending the pieces scattering across the tent. I am no fool, she spat. I am beaten. She turned abruptly, plotting dark and secret ways to overpower the smiling king. Do as you wish. But remember, 
I will always be up for a wager. And I always keep my word. Now, Otissa knew that she was outmatched for now. But she also knew that King Gala was indeed well known to never break a vow or default on a wager. Therefore, she also saw an opportunity here. Warriors, she said to her generals, we are going home. And the armies of warmongering Otissa the Iron retreated for the first and only time. And not a drop of blood was spilled. But every year, the warriors of both kingdoms ride out to meet each other at the border again. And Otissa and Gala spar once more, their soldiers watch, ready to die for their monarchs. And every year to this day, Otissa has returned home, beaten, but certain that the next year she will emerge victorious and lead a bloodless charge to Gala's capital. By these great feats and many more, the kingdom of Smee flourished. And as far as an entire people can be happy, Gala's people were. Many prosperous years passed with only great and strange victories to tell of, until one day, late in his reign, disaster struck. It began with whispers that not all was well in the royal castle. King Gala was no longer to be seen participating in his favorite activities, not horse riding, not wrestling, nor did he participate in the Festival of Holy Games. Soon the whispers became rumors among the common folk, and people began to wonder what had happened to King Gala. Eventually the royal physician heard these rumors too, and she came to the royal chambers upon her return to the castle. She knocked at the door and asked him if all was well. Ah, my loyal physician, replied the king, what ails me is neither body nor mind, and yet it is both. Enter and behold my deformity. The physician entered Gala's extravagant chambers, the walls lined with books of lore, verse, and science, and all manner of toys and curiosities from across the globe. Within stood King Gala, straight and tall, seemingly as fit as a man half his age. But she knew the king and his eccentricities well, and so she saw in his eyes that something was deeply wrong. My knees, he gestured down at his straight legs furiously. I have spent too long standing, signing papers, attending conferences with other rulers. I cannot remember the last time I played with a child or a dog or sat cross-legged by a fire under the stars. I've kept my knees locked in the course of my royal duties. And now they will no longer bend. Nonsense, said the physician although even as she spoke, she was unsure. There is no such condition as this. Let me examine you. There will be a medical explanation. However, despite running every test and him drinking every tincture, at last she threw down her notes, exasperated, and said, Your Majesty, you have overthought yourself into an imaginary state of paralysis. It really is childish. The king replied solemnly, Childish or not? I am not able to bend them. If I cannot bend them, I cannot enjoy my life. And how can I expect to bring joy to my subjects if I cannot feel joy myself? 
The physician scoffed. A nonsense cure for a nonsense condition. I shall fetch the royal jester. Well, in cartwheeled the jester in a shower of sparks and confetti, chuckling clever obscenities. He began a spectacular show, but no matter what he tried, no fantastic pun nor witty ditty could restore the king's knees to their former power. Unnerved and fearing for their kingdom, the king's advisors held an emergency council. The next day, they announced a kingdom-wide proclamation in the name of the great King Gala. The person who could bring the king's knees to bend would be granted any wish. Now it so happened that one week later, the greatest minstrels on the continent were passing through the kingdom of Smee. They were called Tilly and Lili, and they were well known for being able to make any living thing dance, from forlorn lovers to bedridden elders, and, some said, even the flowers themselves. They came to the king's court in answer to the call, and they asked for no wish in return for their show, because for them, the joy of the performance was all they could ever wish for. Even the most austere of the king's librarians found themselves skipping merrily to the wondrous music. As for the king, well, while his feet tapped and his head swayed pleasantly, that perfect jig could do nothing to soften the rusted joints of his knees. The wonderful music was in full swing when suddenly... There was a ferocious pounding against the palace gates, so fearsome and mighty that it drowned out the joyful sound that filled the king's halls. The king and his advisors ran to see what was causing the sound, just in time to see a gigantic brute of a man barging through the gates as if they were made of paper, and swatting the royal guards aside like so many fruit flies. Where is the king? Where is King Gala? roared the giant. The guards rushed to form ranks and protect their king, but Gala raised his hand, and they froze, awaiting his command. I am King Gala, and who are you to force your way into my castle, disturbing a beautiful musical performance, and unannounced at that? But I was announced, Gala. The giant's lungs were like two great caves, and his voice echoed through them deeply as he spoke. I am no petty noble who comes and goes at the mercy of a bugle. I am my own man, and my fists announce me. My name is Gadstrongora, and I am here to earn my wish. Step forward, then, cried the king. And bend these knees of mine, if you can. Gala's guards and his advisors alike cowered in fear as Gadstrongoro produced a huge stone that had been bound to his back with a rough leather cord. Raise your hands above your head, Gala, and I shall place this stone upon them. The weight shall crush your knees into submission. The jester looked desperately at the king, expecting him to turn the wild man away. Very well, said the king, and raised his hands. The giant placed the stone above the king's head, but while his arms shook and his stomach clenched, his knees remained straight. 
Bloodstrong Goro grunted and darted out of the palace gates. He quickly returned with an even greater stone, this one as large as a horse. Even the giant struggled to raise the boulder above his head, and the royal jester cried out, Your Majesty, this will kill you! But the king said nothing and stood firm. The second rock smashed onto the first, sending an unstoppable force through the king's body. His arms buckled, catching the stone on his shoulders. His back bent and his head braced against the rock, yet still his knees remained locked. With a roar, Gadstrong Goror leapt on King Gala himself, bearing down on him with all his inhuman strength and weight. The king gasped and buckled lower, and yet still his knees did not bend. At last, the giant removed the stones from the king, his eyes wide in a stunned silence. No human body should be able to withstand such force, he muttered. Those knees of yours are cursed. Indeed they are, said the king, as Goro Gadstrong dragged his boulders away with him. Now, at this point, the king's worst fears had began to come true. The festival of holy games had been especially lackluster this year. Many of the museums and parks were falling into disrepair, and in the far reaches of the kingdom, tensions had begun to rise among the two great faiths, Tomnu and Rakilan. Worse still, soon was the day on which Otissa the Iron was to challenge King Gala to their yearly game of war. It was common knowledge that it was the king's ruthless joy that always gave him the upper hand in battle. And without it, the people and Gala himself feared that all may be lost to the warmongering Otissa. Perhaps, mused the royal physician morbidly to herself, at last despair will bring him to his knees. Nine weeks before the fateful game was to take place, a man in his autumn years arrived from a far-off kingdom, riding on a cart drawn by a dozen stout hounds, each in a rhinestone-studded collar. He was quite a sight to behold, and the pedestrians cleared a path to the palace to watch him approach. He paid them no mind, and, exiting his hound-drawn cart, he approached the palace gates and informed the guards that he was there to be granted a wish. The guards fetched the physician, and she brought the jester, and together they greeted the foreign stranger. Welcome, said the physician. Tell us your name, and tell us how you intend to bend the royal knees of King Gala. Well, thank you for this kind reception. His accent was thick and sharp. My name is Dr. Bergstein. More than that, I must not say, for the king must experience my invention in the moment with no prior consideration. I can guarantee that it will make the king's knees bend, depending on two conditions. Name them, cried the jester, for they were desperate. The first is that, for the next two months, my instructions must be carried out to the letter with no deviation and not a question asked. You will do no harm to our subjects, warned the physician, but beyond that, the people of Smee will meet your condition. And the second? The second is that, 
Upon my bending of King Gala's knees, I shall be granted my wish, which is to be made young again. Here the physician paused, for she knew full well that we cannot reverse the dreadful, sacred passage of time. But the jester, knowing that there are many ways to feel young, said without a moment's hesitation, It will be done! Wunderbar! cried Dr. Bergstein, and he handed them a thick roll of parchment. You must now bring your finest engineers, stonemasons, and priests to the highest point in the kingdom, and have them follow these schematics to the absolute letter. The construction shall take seven weeks. Wait, said the physician. You said we must follow your instructions for two months, and yet your plan will only take seven weeks? What are you playing at? Do not be suspicious of me, smiled Dr. Bergstein. We shall need the extra week for what comes after. Unsure but desperate, the physician said no more. She carried the blueprints to the guilds of engineers and stonemasons and to the heads of the great faiths of Tomnew and Rakelan. For the next seven weeks, the streets of Smee echoed with the sound of running saws, hammers on stone, taut cables being strung, and holy places filled with the swelling harmonies of new and strange hymns in an unknown, dissonant language. On the final day of the seventh week, the royal physician and the royal jester came to the construction site. The engineers had chosen the great and sheer crystal cliffs of Donalane at the northernmost part of the kingdom. Now these cliffs rise a thousand feet or more from the rocky shores below them, and are almost flat but for the shards of clear crystal that jut out here and there. Those crystals are known to catch the light and make for the world's most beautiful sunsets. But the sky in the kingdom of Smee had been clouded and dark for many months now. The stonemasons had rigged 1,000 boulders side by side to a timed mechanism that would knock them one at a time over the cliff's edge. The choirs of both great faiths were arranged in a huge amphitheater, deep in rehearsal of these strange new songs brought to them by the foreign Dr. Bergstein. The engineers were in the final stages of preparing a contraption almost as huge as the castle itself, strung tight with high-tension cables and a series of clips and hollow bean pods rigged to weights and gears in an incomprehensible clutter whose purpose was known only to Dr. Bergstein. He stood in an observation tower, watching the construction, his hands clasped behind his back. Welcome, royal physician. Splendid, is it not? The physician was baffled by this collection of strange contraptions, and she only stared. She could not see how any of this was going to make the king bend his knees. I just hope it works, she muttered to him. He did not seem to hear. The day finally came, and the king was led from his palace to the crystal cliffs of Donalane. Even in the depths of his depression, the line of huge boulders, each the size of a small hill itself, made him look up. Welcome, your highness, cried Dr. Bergstein. What do you think of my little contraptions? They are marvelous, doctor, replied the king, and I am hopeful but I admit I am at a total loss as to how this will bend my knees. 
Fear not, your highness. You need only wait. The king stood with his most loyal advisers, and the engineers, and stonemasons, and holy men and women all stood by in a tense silence. The sky went from a shining gray, sliding into heavy black, and still they waited. And then when the darkness settled in full, Dr. Bergstein looked at the king, smiled, and raised his hand, signaling to the engineers to begin. A single lever was pulled, sending a line of ball bearings smacking against the hanging pods in intermittent rhythmic clacks. The jester began to nod his head to the playful beat. Then the gears began to turn, sending taut cables twanging deeply like the bass guitar of the universe, layering a simple, primal note over the light, clattering pods. Thick sheets of metal began to flex and wobble, sending a metal zap and bob underneath the building layers of sound. Now the jester was stamping his foot and wiggling his hips. Even some of the advisors were nodding along to the sound. Music again, sighed the king. If Tilly and Lily could not bring me to dance, I think... But he stopped, for Dr. Bergstein was not listening. The foreigner's eyes were glazed over, his whole body swaying gently to the sound. This sound that could not be called music. The mechanical notes began to fade. And then began the choir of priests, moaning their deep and mournful and dissonant hymns to fill the pregnant silence. The king felt goosebumps rippling across his skin, and then the first boulder was released, plummeting with meteoric force towards the stony beach below. In that moment, the clouds broke, and the shining aurora burst forth, filling the crystal cliff with shimmering blue, purple, green, and peacock light. And the next boulder fell, and the next, and the first boulder struck the ground and sent a deep, resounding thud up through the earth and air, taking hold of the king's ears and head, shaking up his chest like an earthquake whose epicenter was in his heart. And before the tremors had faded, then struck the next boulder, and the next, thud, 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 a ruthless rhythm, a mighty bass upon which played the skeletal clattering pods, the alien laser wobbling metal sheets, and the ancient unholy chants of the holy choirs. Enveloped in the strange depths of sound, the king's advisors' heads were thrashing backwards and forwards with a speed that rendered them near invisible, the jester's bones had disappeared, and he writhed joyfully like a ribbon in a thunderstorm. The physician's arms raised and fell with the boulders, her sharp intellect blinded and bound within each infinite instant, thought and reason gone as if they never had been. But the king saw none of this. His eyes were fixed on the glittering crystals, bobbing up and down, up, down, up, down, Knees bending deep and flexing tight in primeval syncopations unstoppable as the cycle of life and death itself.
Like I said before, help can come from unexpected places. And sometimes those places are just big techno raves. Sometimes that's just what you need. Not everyone, but some people sometimes. So give it a go and party responsibly. I hope you enjoyed this story. If you have any questions or uh, if there are any aspects of this story you'd like to explore further, please shoot me an email at pleasesendcampfires at gmail.com or uh, contact me through our Instagram page, Around the Campfire Podcast. As always, I look forward very much to seeing you next time around the campfire. Thank you.